And today's reading is uh, from Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Boy, we, how come we're still in 1 and 2? Haven't we been doing this for like a month and a half? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so it says in Genesis, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of God. Please remain standing and, and uh, join me in prayer. Father, we come before you today just totally exposed for who we are. And we pray that this message, that you would deal with our souls, with our physical needs, our spiritual needs, our emotional needs. Uh, Father, that you would just deal with us where we're at right now. So, Father, we open our hearts to you, and we just pray that you would just, your spirit would just pour into them as uh, Pastor Kyle brings forth uh, our message for today. In your son's precious name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> I was uh, reflecting a little bit um, when Bill was preparing us uh, for receiving the offering and recalling some of what I uh, studied last week and shared with you about um, the the man approaching the king with nothing to give but himself. He says, I give you me. Um, and friends, um, that might be you this morning. You might not have much, if anything, to, to throw in um, the offering. Uh, maybe you're in a place in your life where you can't even give much of yourself. Maybe you're ill. Um, but, but, friend, just know that um, we, we all come to God with empty hands. Amen? He receives us by grace through faith. He doesn't charge us admission. And that is such a great and wonderful thing because Jesus paid it. Jesus paid the admission for us. Praise God. <clears throat> Can you pray with me one more time? Dear, dear Lord, as we reflect on the brevity of life. Um, we thank you, Lord, that one day our friends will hear that we've died, but God, we will be alive and more alive than we ever were. God, we thank you for the hope of eternal life. God, reflecting on the passing of a great evangelist in American culture and history, we ask you for more evangelists. We ask you for revival and awakening in our own hearts that you would send men and women to proclaim the gospel and that many, many people would come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would use us, this little church and this little town, to that end, that we would see pastors and missionaries and evangelists going with the gospel of Jesus that our own hearts and lives would be transformed by the message of the gospel. God, we thank you, Lord, for the local church. We thank you for just down the road, Stone Coast Church. And we thank you for Mount Hope Church on this little uh, east side of Rhode Island. God, we thank the East Bay is representing gospel-preaching churches. Let them thrive. Let them proclaim the gospel of Christ. Let them be holy. Encourage their hearts when they're weary. Help us to continue doing the work of the evangelist. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So, here we are, again gathered on Sunday morning, seeing friends and family and loved ones um, gathered together today. Some of us perhaps have great joy in our hearts, and some of us maybe are carrying tremendous burden. And my prayer to, to God for you has been throughout the week that the Lord, through his word, would minister exactly what you need and hear what he has to speak to you, because our God speaks to us. And we have a God like this. And we're in Genesis chapter 1, verses um, 1 through 2, going lightning fast through a very long book in the Bible. We are going to pick up the pace (laughs) as we go. Last week we did more work developing the context of Genesis by unpacking what's the purpose of, For everything that God says and does, why did God create? Why did he speak to us? Why did he allow us to fall and sin against him? Why did he save us? All of these questions. There there is a a unifying theme throughout all the Bible. And I introduced to you the idea that much of what we see in the Old Testament, that's the early part of the Bible, is something of a shadow, an example, or a type, a symbol of something to come. So when God gives the law to Moses, when God instructs him to build a tabernacle and then King Solomon builds the temple, when we worship God, these are some examples we get by lifting holy hands to him. These are all symbols of God's intention to be king and to have a kingdom. To, to be king and have a kingdom. That's why he created, that's why he redeemed, that's why he does everything that he does. It's realized now in part, and when Christ returns, it will be realized fully. Amen? For now we know in part and prophesy in part, but then we shall fully know because we will see him as he is. This morning I want to examine and apply in more detail the creation story found in Genesis chapter 1. And there's some notable breaks in chapters 1 through 3. This is kind of where we're going to be living in the next few weeks. There's some notable breaks. The first section, if you will, is the creation story and purpose. And that's in Genesis chapter 1, verse verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. The the, the creation story and why God created. And then we see the development of that creation story and purpose in the remaining of chapter 2. And thirdly, we see the fall of Adam and Eve and their expulsion from the garden and how this affected the rest of mankind and also the promise of the Redeemer. And this is in chapter 3. These are some kind of major sections that we see, major themes in the book of Genesis as the story unfolds. Tonight, though, I'm only going to kind of live in verses 1 and 2. And I have basically three points. In the beginning, God created. That was very creative of me. It took me a long time to think of those points, as you can see, because the text is nothing like that. Um, In the beginning, God created. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, basically is a summary statement for what's to follow. God's entire creative exercise. It's almost like a chapter heading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what follows is the unfolding of that creation. It's like a poetic unpacking of sorts of the creative power and divine intention of the creator. 
And these, I think, are perhaps some of the most profound words ever written. They they should, I think, evoke almost a pause in us and take our breath away. Um, Unfortunately, I think we've become very familiar with them, but if we can renew afresh the power and impact of them, I think we'll understand how meaningful they are. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So powerful, profound, perhaps the most profound words ever written. Without realizing it, I think that they teach us a lot, not only about the origin of the universe, but about God, about ourselves, and about how he relates to us. So let's look at these very simple words, these very simple phrases, and try to understand what they mean and how they apply to our lives. In the beginning. In the beginning. Now I'm going to probably just say some Captain Obvious things to you, but just bear with me because sometimes the most obvious things are also the most profound things. These words, in the beginning, I think tell us two things. And the first thing that it tells us is that all the material universe had a start, had a beginning. Matter is not eternal. I came from somewhere. There was a point at which I did not exist. There was a point at which you did not exist. You see, this is going to get more difficult, so try to follow me, okay? There was a point exists where the trees, there there was a point at which the trees and the stars and everything that we see was not. It's just sort of fascinating to think about this. We don't really think about that all too much. The fact that all of the things that we vainly pursue every day to satisfy our soul at one point in time wasn't even here. It was just God. All the material universe had a start. You had a start, and so did I. Some people um, suggest that matter is eternal. So there was some kind of basic stuff, some dirt, who knows what it was, that is, was just forever being, and that that's where um, life came from. But the Bible would tell us otherwise. Scripture says that in the beginning... God created those things. Beginning telling us that there was a point when the universe was not, when it was nothing. And then it began. Incredible. The word for created in Hebrew is the Hebrew word bara. It means to create or to create something out of nothing. Theologians have a Latin phrase for this. I don't know why there's always Latin um, to be smart sounding, but there's always a Latin thing that gets flown around and stuff, but it's ex nihilo, and it means out of nothing. Creation out of nothing. The earth and heavens as we know it at one point did not exist, and God created it out of nothing. Now, Scripture points to the fact that there are some parts of creation that God created with what he created. So that's not technically out of nothing. Right? He used, the Bible says that God formed Adam out of the dirt, right? So that's not technically out of nothing. He used dirt. But where did the dirt come from? He cre- you see, at some point, there was some part of the universe that God created out of nothing. It was not, and then it was. The earth and heavens as we know it was not existent. But number two, it came into existence under the creative power of God. 
It's a very simple point. It came into existence by the creative power of God. Let's not grow familiar with how awesome and incredible this is. Psalm chapter 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God spoke a word, and it was. Something came from nothing at the powerful word of God. And friend, you might have a life that is completely in chaos, but God can make something out of nothing from his word. Don't trust those things which at one point never were. Trust in the only one who always was. See? Psalm chapter 102, verse 25. Of old... You laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Isn't this incredible? Without him, it's almost like John is going to exhaustive lengths to make sure that we completely understand that nothing exists without him well what about the little like you know things in the center of the earth and all you know, that too well what about the you know the gal- jupiter and mars and the gal- yet yeah, that too let's read without him was not anything made that was made incredible talking about jesus christ here by the way this proves that jesus christ is god in the flesh he is not a man like us If he was a man, then he would have been made too. And it's impossible to make yourself. The testimony of Scripture is that Jesus Christ made everything. Everything that has a beginning was made by Jesus. And if Jesus had a beginning, that would be untrue. See? All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist. Why is God worthy in Scripture to receive our glory and our praise and our obedience? Well, according to John in the book of Revelation, the angels testify that the reason we owe him our, our praise and our obedience is because he created us and he sustains our very life. I can't even draw a stick figure. <laughs> My children draw better than me and they're five and three. And I once boasted, I boast about this a lot and if you know me very well, you've probably heard me boast about the time that I actually used algebra. You guys took algebra in high school? I did too, and I remembered it. I had to use algebra for our sign, our refuge church sign out there, because it had to be a certain square footage, and I had to multiply the A squared plus, you know, all this stuff. And I remembered it, and I used algebra, and I was so proud of myself. (laughs) Thank you. It is. It is hard. I know. It's very difficult. And I did it. I'm so proud. But, but God, we, we're so proud of ourselves over such little foolish things. But when we think about the maker of algebra, 
the one who created, the Adam, the little mitochondria, all the things that make our world work. I don't even know what I'm talking about right now. (laughs) The cell wall. Remember the cell? We're so impressed with ourselves that we discovered these things. But for us, they're just a discovery. Let's be introduced to the one who created it. The one who made it. The one who holds our life in his hands. Our God, the great I am. Philosophers divide truth and existence into two categories. Truth that is necessary and truth that is contingent. Or existence that is necessary versus existence that is contingent. And this is very simple. I know it might sound a little tricky. What this basically means is that there are things that exist necessarily and there are also things that exist of contingency. There are things that are true necessarily but there are things that are true of contingency. And what this means is very simple. To be contingent is to rely on something else to be true or, or to rely on something else for existence. Okay? Necessary truth is truth of necessity. It always has to be true. One plus one equals two. That is necessarily true. That is never, it is never three. There are nine planets in the solar system. Is that necessarily true? Well, no, because I think like 10 years ago, poor Neptune or whatever it was, Pluto, they realized it wasn't a planet at all, and now there are eight, and I'm so disappointed about this. We could also send some rockets blasting into, this, into outer space and blowing up, or a meteor could hit one, and now there are seven planets in the solar system, right? So that's contingent. For us to execute justice, there must be something called justice, right? The necessary idea of justice is what makes us be able to exact justice. Does that make sense? A necessary, unchanging standard Now, we all know that our lives are contingent. I was born one day. There was a point in time where Kyle DeGagney was not. Sorry. There was a point in time where you were not, where these chairs were not, where the trees were not. At some point, they came to be, and our lives relied on some outside power for it to be. Does that make sense? They are contingent on something else. The outside power necessary for all life is God. He is life. Our life depends on him because he is life. He is not contingent on anything. He does not depend on any outside source for his power or existence. He is existence. He is life. His name is I am. I exist. I am the existing one. In him was life, and the life was light, the light of in him was light, and the light was the life of men. He is not contingent on anything. He is existence. He is now we might argue about the origins of man. Like man, maybe man came from ape, and maybe apes came from fish, and those fish came from soup and, and et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm really I wasn't even really trying to be funny. I think that's really the, the working theory. So Right, you go back enough, but the question is, well, where did where did that soup come from? Even if we concede at some level that some kind of evolution existed, where did matter that once was not come from? 
Because we know that it can't create itself. So we have to push the question, where did, even if we go back as far as we can go, from us to ape to soup, where did it come from? At some point, we'll have to either say that the soup always was, and the soup is God, essentially, because our life depends on that, that soup, or we can call it by name, God Almighty. Or there is an eternal life, a creator from which all the universe depends. And friends, this is the summary of Genesis 1.1. There was a beginning to the universe and everything in it, and that beginning depended on the one who had none. Isn't that incredible? Number two, the second thing that we can learn from this phrase, in the beginning, the word beginning marks the start of a grand story. And I like this one. This one's fun. That which, that which has a beginning, the creation of the universe and mankind, this is the beginning of a divine narrative pointing to the end, the end of the story. This isn't just data. This isn't just information. God is telling us a story by this, and this is the start of it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some of you might be familiar with that classic book, Peter Pan. Have you ever read the book or just maybe you just saw the movie? Have you seen the movie? Yeah, one person has seen Peter Pan in this room. I doubt it. Okay, thank you. Um, not many other people have read the, the book by J.M. Barry. But the very opening line of the book by J.M. Barry says this, All children except one grow up. Remember this? And that one's Peter Pan. All children except one grow up. That one, Peter Pan, seeks out, if you remember the story, he seeks out a mom because all little boys need a mom. right? So he seeks out a mom and mom is Wendy. He finds Wendy. Now the last sentence of that book says this. This is literally the last sentence. When Margaret, Margaret is Wendy's granddaughter. Jane is Wendy's daughter. Margaret is Wendy's granddaughter. When Margaret grows up, she will have a daughter who is to be Peter's mother in turn. And thus it will go on so long as children are gay and innocent and heartless. Interesting, because Wendy grows up, so he gets Jane to be his mom. Jane grows up, he gets Margaret to be his mom. See, Peter Pan is the boy who never grows up, so he's relentlessly seeking out a mother. When, Wendy's, when Wendy was Peter's mom, then Jane, then Margaret. Who is to be Peter's mother in turn, and thus it will go on, so long as children are gay and innocent and heartless. See, it ended, Peter Pan ended like it began. Peter Pan sought out a mother, found Wendy, and at the end, he nabbed her granddaughter. <laughs> right? Marvelous story, wonderful literature. Well, history, friends, is God's story. And it's not much different in the Bible either. The way we see the beginning is the way we see the ending. History is God's story. And the start of it reads, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's an amazing story of the Bible. It's a story of creative power. It's a story about God. And it's a story about his love for creation. And it's a story about him rescuing creation. And bringing it back to what he intended it to be. That's the grand story of scripture. 
You know, it says in the beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You know how the story of the Bible ends? Revelation 22. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the ending. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. He is the beginning of the story. He is the ending of the story. And he is everything in between. History is about God. Our existence is about him. Everything that happens is about him. Recall the words of John Salahamer. He said that the fundamental principle reflected in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the prophetic vision of the times of the end and the rest of the scripture is that the last things will be like the first things. The last things will be like the first things. Isaiah 65, verse 17, Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. It ends like it begins. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You see, God has his way. Satan doesn't win. We don't win. Our sickness doesn't win. Our job loss doesn't win. Our jerk landlord doesn't win. Right? Evil doesn't win. God triumphs. He has his way. The last things, the end of the story of Scripture is quite similar to the start. And I've shown this to you before. Um, the, the chart will be up on the screen in a moment. But Revelation chapter 22, it says this. <clears throat> then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life. As clear as crystal. You see, what's in Genesis 1? the water of life, (laughs) a river flowed out of Eden, dividing it into more rivers. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the lambs and the lamb, God and of the lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. You see, it's Eden. It's Eden back. It's Eden restored. Jesus is present. On each side of the river stood, guess what? The tree of life. The end is like the beginning bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. We'll get to that in Genesis chapter 3. Because the end is like the beginning, friends. No longer is there any curse. Genesis chapter 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him, just like Eden. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. In the beginning, there was light, and there wasn't even a sun yet, because of the glory of the light of Christ. And... They will reign forever and ever. They will reign forever. What did God call Adam and Eve to do? To rule over the the fish and the birds and the animals, to go to the ends of the earth and have dominion over the created thing. And at the end of the story, that's exactly what we're doing. And they will reign forever and ever. 
the end is like the beginning, friends. That's the story of Scripture. It's about God. God has his way. You say, oh, this politician, and oh, isn't this tragic? And friends, they are tragic, and evil is awful, but God wins. You see, without God, it's all arbitrary. It's all random. It doesn't matter. But if there is a God, and that God is just and good, then he'll deal with it, and he'll put an end to it. And friends, if you don't want to be judged by the living God, then let him judge your sin on the cross of Christ and inst- instead of on you. And he will because he loves you and he bids you to come and repent and trust in Christ. In the beginning, number two, God. In the beginning, God. <clears throat> God is the architect and hero of all human history. He is the great subject and purpose of Genesis and all the Bible. In the beginning God, in the end God. And friends, if all of life is about God, why is our lives not about God? Why are our lives not about obeying Him and loving Him and following Him? In the scriptures and in the text, God's existence is assumed. It doesn't go to any lengths to prove why God exists. It just says, right, in the beginning, God. There's a lot of people that don't believe in God, and the Bible doesn't even really address that. Nowhere does the Bible really try at any length to establish the fact that he does exist. It says simply, in the beginning, God. John Calvin, the great reformer and theologian, said that even a heathen admits that there is, quote, no nation so barbarous, no race so brutish, as not to be imbued with the conviction that there is a God. You see, and that's even true in our culture. I know that there are atheists that, that live in our culture, but by and large, people still believe in God, even in the 21st century. As smart and postmodern as we are, we still believe we came from somewhere. And the, the Bible tells us why we still believe this in Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain, to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we can look at the world around us and just naturally and logically assume that it had to come from somewhere, some power, some intelligence higher than us. And that's the testimony of Scripture. That's really all it says about trying to establish the proof of God's existence. The Bible doesn't really see the need to prove God's existence, but I do want to pause here for a moment to reflect on this a little bit, to show us why it's rational and logical to believe in God. Now, now we can be on this for weeks, so this is going to be lightning fast, and there's, there's, this is a grand subject that you could study for, for whole college courses, but I just want to give you a few reasons why it's it's reasonable to believe in the existence of God and I've you guys remember the coffee cup so that I already gave you one of them so that's a freebie but the first one I want to look at is the argument from efficient cause the argument from efficient cause everything in the natural order is the effect of a cause if I kick that flower pot over it happened because I kicked it right you with me so far okay everything in the natural order is the effect of a cause the reason the sun shines, the reason my heart beats. Everything that we see around us has a cause. No, um, no contingent thing, we talked about that a little bit already, can cause itself. I, if I came from nothing, nothing can't create something. Does that make sense? 
no contingent thing can cause itself. For this to be so, the thing would need to exist prior to its existence, which is absurd, <laughs> right? That means there cannot, also, excuse me, there cannot also be a never-ending regress or never-ending number of causes. At some point, we have to establish that something existed forever. There must be a first cause, an uncaused cause. Does that make sense? A necessary causer. Now, this is somewhat philosophical, I know, and this is somewhat logical, but we call his name God. He is God. He is the I am. He is the one who, in whom we live and move and breathe. He causes us. You see? He is the only one not caused because he is the uncaused one. Okay? That's the first one. The second one that we can look at, I've taught, this is kind of related to the coffee cup thing. If this is your first time here or you weren't here last week, you might not know what I'm talking about. But that's the argument of design. The natural this is number two, the argument of design. The natural and un unintelligent universe functions in an ordered way. If you ever noticed this, the way birds fly, right? The way, the way our bodies work, it's all very orderly. We, can all, we all can make very good sense of it. Everything functions in an order way, ordered way. And it occurs so regularly that it's absurd to think that all this order came from disorder. That all this order doesn't have an ordering one. See? A mind, an intelligence. This is, was kind of popularized by a guy named William Paley. And he gave this illustration of a watch. Of the watchmaker. He called God the watchmaker. And basically the idea goes like this. If you were walking down the through the woods and in the deep woods and you found a little pocket watch ticking and moving your natural presumption would be that there's a watchmaker that some because it has order because it serves a purpose there's a function and a design to it it accomplishes a certain task right that you would just naturally presume that that watch came from somewhere that has a it had a mind behind it you see and that's, that's another thing that we can presume about the universe that we look at, that there's got to be a mind behind it. With a, a universe that is infinitely more complex and infinitely more ordered and purposed than a watch. <laughs> right? As a matter of fact, that watch wouldn't even work if there was not order already in the universe that exists. Okay? It's the argument of design. There must be a directing intelligence. Okay? In the beginning, God. The third thing that we can look at, and I'm not going to say much about this, it's kind of maybe a different kind of argument that I'm using, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This points to the fact that there is a God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historically verifiable event in human history, and it authenticates the testimony of Christ. Christ told us that there was a God who is self-existent, that all things came from. The resurrected one told us about him and revealed him to us. Jesus testified all of the things that our logic demands when we think about God, that God has to be self-existent. He was and is and is to come, that he's eternal, that all things come from him. So his resurrection authenticates his word, which, which testified of all these things about God's nature. 
The Bible doesn't go to great lengths to try to prove God's existence. It presumes people, in general, believe in some kind of God. The, the statement we often claim, you, you probably have heard this before, maybe even thought this before, well, if God would just show himself to me, then I'd believe. Have you ever thought that? I mean, just if we're just being real honest, like if God would just do something so that I'd know that he's real and that he's there and that he cares. You know, knock that mic stand down right now. Right? Like, we're looking for some kind of sign. And then, like, we think that if we have some kind of visible proof, which we have, by the way, already, but different visible proof that's more maybe spectacular, then we'd believe. This is a presumption at best. Because first of all, like I said, he did reveal himself to us and proved to us by many miraculous signs, concluding with his resurrection, that he was the great I am. He did come. He did say, here I am. And yet, we did not believe him. Yet, we scoff. And second, he provided us the created thing as proof of his presence and power. The, the articulate design and order and intelligence behind it all, yet we jeer. And we retort, but if he would just show me himself in some kind of like, you know, cloud and speak to me or something like this. Will you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16 with the rich man suffering in hell? He says, I beg you, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him, Lazarus is dead, resurrect him from the dead, right? Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. God, if you showed yourself to me visibly, then I'd believe. He said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You see, faith in God and Christ requires a supernatural awakening. We will always reject him. Revelation chapter 19 proves this even more. What can be better proof than the visible return of Jesus Christ? Jesus is coming back in the clouds. You think, pray, we were wrong. There he is. Worship Jesus. I repent. I believe. You think that would be the response. But what does Scripture tell us of this visible display of Jesus descending from heaven, made visible to all humanity? If you read Revelation 19, that's what's going on. That's what you see. What do they do? Do they repent and believe? Nope. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies saying, let's take them. We can take them. They don't believe because it's not about whether or not you believe in God. It's about whether you love him. The Bible assumes people believe in God. It does not assume that you love him. See? So there's the question. Do you love him? In the beginning, God. In the end, God. Created. Number three. 
God created. God is the author of the grand story. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Not only is God's existence assumed, not only does the heavens and the earth have a beginning, but God is creation's architect. He didn't give creative power and authority over to somebody else while he just, you know, played bowling with the angels and let us kind of do our thing. God created us and sustains us and loves us and loves you. God is the author of creation. God's existence is assumed in Scripture. The earth has a beginning. God is creation's architect. Again, Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. What God says happens. When God speaks, it works. That doesn't work with me. Noel, please sit and eat your dinner. No. <laughs> you guys don't have kids like that, right? All your kids listen to you immediately, right? <laughs> Pearl, don't, take, don't snatch that toy from your sister. <laughs> my word, my word doesn't accomplish much, <laughs> right? But when God speaks, friends, the stars come to be. The earth comes to be. My heart, my heart starts beating. Nothing can rebel. The only, no created thing, no physical thing has ever said no to him except our will. Friends, all of this created universe responded to the powerful word of God. And when he speaks to you, why is it that the only thing that ever says no to God is our will? You see, gravity always listens. The heart listens, the planets listen, the sun listens, the trees listen. But when he comes to us, we say, no way. Friends, in the beginning, God created you. And he loves you and he's better. He's better than the created thing. He created you. Why? Well, number one, God created this universe for his own pleasure. Not because he was bored. Oh, what am I going to do today? Oh, I'm so sick of the third person of my triunity. I'll create man. That's what I'll do. God, God didn't create because he was bored or lonely. God delights in his creation. Revelation 4, thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. God delights in his creation. J. Vernon McGee, J. Vernon McGee if you ever heard of him, right? He's been dead a long time, but he's still on the radio, right? J. Vernon McGee says he created this universe because he wanted to. <laughs> wow, so profound, man. He created this universe because he delighted to create, in this to create this universe. He loved forming the stars in the sky. He loved designing, engineering your eye and the sloth, as odd as that might seem. The weird, slow creature. 
that needs to speed up. He took pleasure in forming our bones and skin and muscles and hair. Imagine this. He delights in the masterful architecture of his handiwork. And friends, in short, he delights in you. If he delights in his creation, he delights in you. He loves you. You are his creation. That means you are fantastic by virtue of your association with him. And what better a call for us to repent and to believe in our good maker that loves us, that died for us. He took pleasure in creating us. Number two, he created for his own glory. His own glory. The angels praised God. Did you know this? When he created the world in Job chapter 38. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You know, Job's kind of bickering with God a little bit, complaining because he had some hard things happen. And God starts answering him. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? (laughs) Surely you know. He's being sarcastic in case you haven't figured this out yet. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Its foundation. Who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You see, that means, that tells me that when God created the heavens and the earth, the angelic hosts were already created by God and they were absolutely in awe of his creative power. You see, he created for his own glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know it says, it's very popular, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To give glory to something is simply to acknowledge how great that thing is. We give glory to Tom Brady. We give glory to the sunset. We give glory to lots of things that we are just impressed by. Well, God is the greatest of all that we should be impressed by. And we should give him great. He, he created for his glory. And by the way, number three, he created us for his intimate fellowship. Wow. No other created thing gets this privilege with our God. No other created thing is called his bride, his wife. That's how much he loves you. You see, I love the sunset, and I love a nice warm day and a walk through the woods, and I love ice cream. (laughs) But I love my wife way more than all of those things. I'm intimate with her. She is my dear friend. She is different even from all of you. I have a a special relationship with her that I have not with one other person in this room. Now just think about this because God said that he created you and me to be his wife. There is a special and intimate love that God has for you that he has not with the angels, that he has not with the rest of creation. And you think that you're a loser. And you think that you're in trouble. Friend, come to Christ and you will never be in trouble again. You will never lose again because you've won. Your sins are forgiven. You are clothed in his righteousness and you will be presented to him as a spotless bride in the eternal kingdom. You see, the end 
the the end is like the beginning. You come to faith in Christ. He created you for his fellowship, made to enjoy God forever in friendship and love. Genesis 3, verse 8. Adam and Eve hear God walking in the garden in Eden. This is after they've sinned. But presumably, we have to presume here that this was commonplace for them. That their fellowship with God was unique and intimate in the garden because they didn't freak out when they heard God. If all of a sudden you heard God around us, we'd probably would start running. We'd be afraid. Things like that don't happen. But that's not what happens. They hit. They did hide, but for different reasons because they had sinned. You see, they had an intimate fellowship with God in Eden and lost it because of sin, but redemption brings it back. Christ brings it back. That's the story of the Bible. And friend, that can be the story of your life. Your sin's not better than that. Friend, turn from it. Trust Christ and be betrothed to the eternal God, Father, and Christ. Amen? Amen. He is coming. God blessed Adam and Eve in Revelation 22. We will see his face. Praise God. So let me close. The earth had a beginning. And it leads to a prophetic end. God is real. He is the author of all things. He created us because he delighted to do it, because it brought him glory, and because he wants marriage with us. Amen? The end's like the beginning. Let's pray. God, help us to trust you fully with these things. Help us not to turn to the created thing that had a beginning that cannot fulfill our empty soul. But God, I pray that we would come to you in repentance and faith. And friend, if that's you right now, don't spend another minute marrying your own will, marrying your own desires, marrying your own sin. Be wed to Christ. Turn from all of it and trust that the death and resurrection was died for you, that God was judging sin on Christ for sinners like you. Trust in Jesus and that judgment's put on him, taken off of you, and you will be wed to Christ. That's what you receive by faith in Jesus. If you're coming to faith in Christ right now, I want you to tell me by just raising your hand. No one's looking. If that's what's happening in your heart, I want you to let me know so that I can pray for you. God, we thank you for the, re- the, the believers in this room that know Jesus Christ already. I pray, God, that this would be a, a good reminder that you're in control, that you created us and love us, and that you are bringing us to where you want us, the bride of Christ. How marvelous. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to turn now.